Buford on the web at wagp.net. Our thanks to LK Advantage Property Solutions for a programming grant. LK Advantage is a local business specializing in buying houses as is, in any condition and any situation. LK Advantage's solution is easy because they buy as is, meaning no repairs for the seller, they pay closing costs, and can close quickly. Complete information is available from Lobby at 843-644-1111 or online at lkadvantageps.com or on Facebook. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Welcome to the Bible Line. If you are our first-time listener, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions as they've been studying God's Word. Maybe there's a passage that they're not certain what it means or how it applies, or there's an issue in your life that you'd like biblical counsel That's what we do, and by God's grace, we will do our best to respond and answer to you from God's Word. Again, the number locally is 843-525-1859. You can live stream, of course, as many people do. Uh, This station is on 24-7 through the Internet at wagp.net. But if you want to email us directly here into the studio, you don't want to call, but you just want to email, you can do so as well, and the email address is tbl. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. And um, if you do call at 843-525-1859, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and it will pop up here on the screen in front of us. Well, Rick, as always, it's great to be here for this new Bible line today, and uh, let's go ahead and get started. All right, indeed, Pastor Nick from Okatee writes, Does Satan know when a person comes to faith in Christ? I'm asking this because in my own experience and other fellow believers' experience, after putting our faith and trust in God, a lot of bad things started to happen, and the enemy was starting to attack relentlessly. Well, it's it's a great question. Um, let me first say that there's all kinds of difficulties that come in life that aren't necessarily related to conversion. You know, when you think of suffering, there's common suffering, there's carnal suffering, there's Christian suffering. Common suffering, it just happens by virtue of the fact that you live in a fallen world. So two people can both take care of themselves well and uh, both can get heart attacks, then there are Christians who don't take care of themselves, and they bring a lot of physical problems, and it might be timed with their conversion, so to speak, just because it caught up to them, the lifestyle choices they had made, and it has nothing to do that the fact that you're a Christian. Uh, there's carnal suffering that Christian and non-Christian alike experience, and sometimes that's due to our own sin. You know, your own sin will reprove you, the Bible teaches, and uh, certainly sometimes we experience the sin of other people in our lives, and uh, it happens to Christian and non-Christian alike. But then there's Christian suffering, and certainly that is a unique dimension 
of uh, the believer where because you name the name of Christ, you can be persecuted. And a lot depends on what part of the world that you live in uh, because there are some nations of the world that are not friendly at all to Christianity where you are jailed or imprisoned and in some countries you're executed. So, uh, you know, that could happen at some point in the United States. We know it will eventually in every country of the world when the Antichrist is here, the church will have been raptured. But if someone is unwilling to acknowledge and follow the Antichrist, the Bible is very clear that they will be executed, and the principal means that the Scripture describes is by beheading. Uh, But thank God the church will have been gone by that point. But my my point is, is that sometimes, you know, things get more difficult. Uh, so your more specific question is, does Satan know um, when a person comes to faith in Christ? And may I add the next question yeah. as well? Because as I read it, it's not too far down the line from this question. John from Westchester, Pennsylvania wants to know, how much access does the devil have to our mind and soul? I don't want to give him too much credit for just my mind and my own failure versus what God has allowed him to access to me. I didn't get enough from Job to understand his impact over me and what scriptures are most important for me to read about this topic. Thank you for your answer. Well, let me uh, deal with the first half, and they are related. You're right, Rick. So the first one is, does Satan know when we come to faith? And I would say definitively, yes. Uh, The the scripture teaches in Colossians 1.13, for he, the Lord, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So there's a kingdom switch where at one point you're in Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and in the next moment you are in a new kingdom, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. And of course, um, Satan knows that. He knows who the enemy is. And so God warns us of the enemy. We see, for instance, how he successfully uh, tempted Ananias and Sapphira, obviously, he knew they were believers. And so Peter would say, why has Satan put this deed in your heart, you know, to, to, to lie against God? Um, obviously, as we've been studying the Revelation, one of the themes that we looked at was uh, from Revelation 12 and verse 10, where Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. That is, he has a ministry of accusation where he brings people's names to the throne of God. Hey, did you see what so-and-so did? And he accuses God's people. So obviously he knows who the believers are and who the unbelievers are. are. Paul, in when he writes the church at Thessalonica, I think it's 1 Thessalonians 2. Um, let me just turn there and I'll tell you the exact verse. Uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, 2.18. And so in that passage of Scripture, he reminds us how Satan tried to hinder his work, hinder the work of the gospel. And Satan will do that at times. He'll try to hinder God's work. So obviously, he especially is alert to people who are engaged in trying to rescue people from the kingdom of darkness. And this is why sometimes the Christian life gets more difficult. When you're asleep in the arms of the evil one, uh, you are no threat to his kingdom. But Paul says, uh, for we wanted to come to you I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. So Satan knows who's, who has done a kingdom switch. Um, Paul, or John writes in 1 John 4, uh, Ye are of God, little children, you are of God, and have overcome them, uh, because greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. 
And so Satan knows who to tempt, who to attack. And so this Christian is warned in Ephesians 6 that we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and evil forces that are at work in the heavenly places. Um, Satan uh, tells us, um, and we're told in 2 Corinthians 11, that Satan sends false teachers into the church. So again, he doesn't send false teachers into uh, unbelievers, but amongst believers, he sows tares. Uh, the enemy came, Jesus said, and sowed tares. So yes, there's no, there's no question that when there's a kingdom change, the evil one is aware of that. Now, the second question is similar, but slightly different. How much access does Satan have to our mind? Um, well, just let's just remember, and let's keep Satan in his place. He's not omnipresent. And he's not omniscient. Only God is everywhere and only God knows everything. But can a demon or Satan himself uh, read our minds? And the answer is no. Uh, God is very clear in a number of passages. First uh, Kings 8, verse 39, it says, Only God knows uh, the human heart. I, psalm 139, which is a great psalm that speaks of God's omniscience and his omnipresence, is even before we can form a, a sentence with our tongue, God knows what we're going to say. So God knows the mind. And Jesus, as the omniscient God, even in his humanity, when he chose to exercise his deity, he knew what was in the heart of man. He knew what people were going to think, uh, like when he raised the paralytic there in Capernaum, or when he, after he had done many miracles, uh, beginning in Cana, uh, because he knew what was in man's heart, he would not entrust himself to different people. Uh, so the Bible teaches that Satan is not omniscient, he's not omnipresent, but it does teach that he's very, very powerful. And he has uh, a number of uh, minions, he has innumerable number, one-third, remember, of all the demons um, uh, chose to follow him. One-third of all the holy angels became demons, fallen angels, and so Satan was a very convincing kind of person. He was a powerful angel. He had a very elite position. Um, we, he might have been an archangel. Um, we don't know for sure, but he, we do know he had a high position. We don't know if he ever had that title, but even Michael the archangel, and I have a whole sermon on this from Jude, uh, he said, the Lord rebuke you. Uh, he recognized that when he had a direct encounter with Satan himself, he didn't try to confront him without the Lord's help. And so Satan, Ephesians 2 says, is the ruler of this world. He is the God of this world, Second Corinthians 4, 4 says. And he is the spirit who is at now at work. The word work is energo. He's the spirit who is at work or energizing the sons of disobedience. So he has great power, but his power has his limits. But obviously, he's been around for thousands of years uh, watching humanity. And having watched humans for some 6,000-plus years, he knows very often how people will respond. And so there are three forces that wage war against the believer. There is Satan, there is the flesh, and there's a world system within and so Satan is no fool. He crafts the world system around us. And sometimes he can use one person where he puts a vain imagination in their thought, thought or he tempts them with evil, and that's all it takes to lure that person to create a movie or a song or 
to put out some new ideology that's going to affect millions of people. So we are warned as Christians to take up the shield of faith, which is able to quench the fiery darts of the evil one. He is evil, and he shoots his fiery darts, and we take up that shield of faith. And the word word for faith, it's an interesting word. There, Excuse me, the word for shield is an interesting word. There is a small shield, a round shield, and then there's the large body shield that the Romans could literally uh, create a wall. Uh, and it would cover their whole body, and that's the that's the word that he uses here for for shield. Uh, Satan may throw his massive arrows at us, but we have the shield of faith to really distinguish those arrows, and that presupposes that you know the origins of faith. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by God's word. That you're able to take every thought, as Paul will say in Second Corinthians 10, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that's what we're called to do. And that's what you see Jesus doing at the temptation. Every time a temptation is hurled at him, um, he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. So temptation can come from the world around us that Satan is energizing. Sometimes the devil has nothing to do with the temptation at all. It just comes from our own fallen nature, James chapter 1 talks about how a man is drawn away by his own nature, or sometimes there are direct attacks from the evil one. And by direct attacks from Satan, he may not personally be involved, but he has millions of demons who are involved and who uh, do try to lure God's people into sin. So he has his limits. He's not all-powerful. He's not omnipresent, but he is powerful, and we have to respect that power. But we need to know that we have some great offensive and defensive weapons that we can exercise. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, an anonymous listener in Canada writes, Hello, Pastor Brogy. I believe that if God wants something to happen, it will. But I also believe that people can go against God's will for their life. And this is where I'm confused. I've been hearing a lot lately where people say, we want this many kids, but God's will be done. And then they'll take measures to not become pregnant, thinking that if God wants them to have more kids, they will. Wouldn't this be going against God's will? If someone is taking preventive measures and so doesn't have more children, they would believe God didn't want them to have more. So I guess my question is, can you go against God's will in something like this, or will his will come to pass regardless? No, we make choices, and choices have consequences. And so God does not, you know, override man's free will. We are truly free moral agents with the ability to decide. Now, God will often uh, create or craft uh, circumstances in a way that would predispose his will to come about because God takes great delight when his people does his will, but in the end, we have choices to make. And so, you know, if a couple decides, you know, yeah, we believe God's sovereign in the number of children he'll give us, but we're going to take these preventive methods, you know, well, look, if you take a birth control pill every month or every week or however often you take those things every day, I think they take them daily, um, then, uh, you know, you're basically saying, I'm in charge of this area and you're making a decision. Now, I I recognize there are times when sometimes birth control for medical reasons is necessary to protect the human body against a pregnancy uh, because of uterine damage or one thing or another. 
But assuming someone is healthy and they are, you know, saying, well, look, we're, we're, we're taking birth control because we don't want to have a baby, then you're going to get what you wish. And I, I think that's something a lot of Christians need to rethink in our day because we say we're pro-life, but I really wonder how pro-life we are in that uh, children are considered a blessing from God. And very often Christians will say, well, you know, God, you've just blessed me with uh, so much money. Stop blessing me. No, I haven't heard that one. Uh, We don't typically think that way because we see, say, material goods is a real blessing that we're thankful for. And we don't say, well, God, you've just blessed me with too much material. Stop. No, but somehow when it comes to children, we don't really see them as a gift from God. And so, uh, you know, there are methods that people can use if they're uncertain whether they're ready to have another child that are not man-made, they can refrain for a period of time when a woman would be, you know, able to get pregnant. There's only about four or five days out of a whole month where that can happen. Now, God can certainly override anything, and things happen, anomalies happen when it's supposedly impossible for a woman to get pregnant, and she gets pregnant anyway. But see, that is God's blessing, God's plan, God's purpose. But but don't say, well, you know, um, we're doing such and such, and we're going to see if God can override it. No, you make decisions, and we could, obviously, the illustration that this caller from Canada brought is in reference to birth control, but you could apply it to a multiplicity of, you know, areas. And if you're going to make a decision, more than likely— you're going to get what you decide. Uh, you're going to get what you've sown. Do not be, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he shall reap. And you're going to get the fruit of the decision that you make for good or for bad. Very good. Ashley in Bluffton, South Carolina writes, Hello, Dr. Brogy. I became saved after I was married. My husband and two young children ages eight and six are still unsaved. Thankfully, we attend a good Bible-believing church. I pray fervently for their salvation every day and see God's work already in play. Recently, all three of them have expressed fear of dying, the process of it, and the afterlife. My kids expressed that they don't want to die, and they are being saved. Uh, they're being saved eases the fear of the afterlife, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But what can I also say about the reality of dying? It breaks my heart to hear this, but. I know God is nudging me to share the gospel and help them through these fears with his help. Thank you so much. Well, these are great questions, Ashley, and I'm excited that you have found Christ as your Savior. And obviously, uh, when that happens to a person, they have an immediate burden for those who are closest to them. And in this case, your own husband and these two children, eight and six, So you should be doing everything possible to try to introduce these children to Christ. For one, uh, you might want to consider uh, taking uh, Parenting 102, which I just finished teaching. In the second lesson, even if you only listen to the second lesson uh, in that series, How to Introduce Your Children to Christ, I actually do a presentation with two children who had not yet made a decision, or one actually had, the other had not, on the platform uh, to give them an opportunity to receive Christ as their Savior. And they were willing to do that, and their parents were willing. And so I thought, well, this would be a great teaching tool to help parents communicate the gospel because very often 
uh, children are being given something less than the gospel. Oh, little Sally, you want to become a Christian? Just ask Jesus into your heart. What does that mean? Where do you find that in Scripture? Nowhere. Oh, just accept Jesus as your Savior. What does that mean? Just commit your life to Christ. What does that mean? And by the way, the Bible never says to invite Jesus into your heart or to accept Christ or to commit your life to Christ. Those are terms that we have manufactured that unless they are defined, uh, they don't mean anything. Uh, You don't become a Christian by asking Jesus into your heart. That's actually a byproduct. That is a fruit of conversion, but that's not how you're converted. Um, some people, hey, well, well, you ask them, what does it mean to accept Jesus? You say you've accepted Jesus as your Savior. What does that mean to you? Well, I accept him as the Son of God, and and therefore, since he's God, I try to follow him and, and live like he lives and to obey his commandments and be the best person I can be. Well, certainly accepting him as God the Son is a critical dimension of why he could die in our place, but following him as an example is not how one becomes a Christian. So these are undefined terms. So you want to begin to define these with your children, and you can immediately and should begin to share with this 8-year-old and this 6-year-old. And if you're not sure how to present the gospel to them, definitely uh, listen to the second message in the series, Parenting um, 102. I did Parenting 101 and then Parenting 102. In the second message, I talk about how do you share the plan of salvation with a small child in a way that they can understand it. The other thing that you might do with your husband, since he himself has expressed a fear about dying, and again, you deal with it with your children. You know, God said the wages of sin is death. God warned Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.16, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And so God predicted that death would enter into the world through sin, and it did on that day. The moment Adam and Eve had taken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they died. They died on the inside spiritually. And so God describes us now as being physically alive, but spiritually dead. Uh, They began to die physically. And so now we're, in one sense, born dying. We're getting older and older, and we're marching towards the grave. And if the problem's not fixed before we leave this world, we die eternally. We die in a forever place of judgment the Bible calls hell. So, you know, with your kids, yeah, kids, we're all going to die someday. That's because sin came into the world. You know, the Bible has an explanation as to why people die. Now, the evolutionist, his explanation, because he denies the existence of God and he's done the best he can with his fallen mind to come up with an explanation of how the world has gotten here. You know, he believes if you take his um, wisdom which is no wisdom at all. It's the wisdom of this world, Paul would say. But if you take his wisdom to its logical end, eventually man won't die. He'll be able to evolve enough where he can keep on living on and on. But the Bible has an explanation why people die physically, why people are are dead spiritually, and why they will die eternally. And so you should say to your children, this is why there are graveyards across the world. Because sin came into the world. This was never God's plan, but it put us on notice that there's a problem. So we need to be prepared to die. 
Uh, we don't have to live, kids, in fear that death is going to come um, because God tells us that uh, if we know Christ is our Savior, we can have a different uh, aspect uh, in terms of the way we live. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now, those are two really complicated verses, but let me just take all the air out of the balloon. Christ, because he was victorious over death, he came out of the grave on the other side, declaring him as Lord, as sinless and able to pay the penalty physical, spiritual, eternal death in our place, he has removed the fear of death for those who've received him as Lord. So what your children need to know and what your husband needs to know is how can they find Christ as their Savior. And if uh, they were visiting the church that um, I pastor, I would invite them to come to a meet the pastor. I host it two or three times a month. You're just in Bluffton. You might want to consider coming to one. In fact, I'll have one in Bluffton. Uh, Coming up in just a couple of weeks, the last Sunday in November, I think it's November the 24th, after the 11 o'clock service, I will drive over to the Bluffton campus where there's a potluck and you don't have to bring anything as a visitor, Ashley. But then I will meet with visitors who will come that day and I will share our core values. And in doing, I will talk about what it means to really be a Christian. And that's what your husband needs to know. Another option for you would be to, and there's something good, I think, about being live because you can um, answer people's specific questions. They come in and they, they, they answer a couple questions for me so I can get to know them spiritually and where they are in their journey. But two, um, they can write down whatever questions they want, and they'll hear a clear, simple presentation of the gospel. Um, and I'll explain how they can be born again. The other option is you could go online to searchthescriptures.org and click on, would you like to know God as your friend? And you could say to your husband, hey, why don't we watch this together? You mentioned that, you know, you are a little bit fearful of dying. And this particular pastor explains how to remove really the fear from death so that we're prepared. And you could watch that with him. And I would suggest if you do watch it with him, that when the video, uh, when you watch it, and I ask two questions about how certain you are that you go to heaven and why God should let you into heaven, that you'd stop the video and let your husband write down his answers. Now, he will answer those questions for me if he comes to meet the pastor. That's part of the questions that I ask the visitor. And, And why is that helpful? Because it allows them to really take what they think is the way of salvation and put it into the mirror of the Bible to see if it even matches. So that would be really, really useful. So those would be some suggestions for you. All right, I think we have someone who's been waiting on the air patiently, so let's go live to them. Indeed. Thank you for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. I have a question. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Okay. And God is the only... uh, eternal being in existence and in creation, and the Bible said God is light, and his, you know, his, his face is his bright glory, and so God says something, I could hear the light, and said the light from the darkness, so it said God is creating everything, so where the darkness comes from, because God feels all in all, his presence all 
where did the darkness come from? Well, it's a good question. So we're moving uh, from the realm of God's throne into a creation, and that's really what God is describing in Genesis, how he's creating a world. And so I find it interesting that even before God created the luminaries like the sun, he just creates light. And it's really an expression, as you said, of who God is. Uh, The light is good. And, of course, um, God affirms that he separates the light from the darkness, and he called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was morning, there there was evening, there was morning, day one. And so God steps through each day of the creation. But understand the term light darkness, though it it can be used metaphorically of uh, holiness versus evil, and it's used that way in Scripture in a number of places, but it's not used exclusively that way. So the genesis of your question really here is, well, how can God create darkness if darkness is evil, and where did the darkness come from? Well, darkness is not always evil in Scripture. Uh, God allowed the sun that he made to, quote-unquote, set. Uh, Obviously, the sun doesn't set. The earth rotates around the sun, so it appears like it's setting. But God made the dark come every day. Why? To give us a chance to rest our bodies. If you go to other time zones and, you know, and all of a sudden you move into a time zone where you're 12 hours different. Like when I fly from here to China, there's a 12-hour difference. And sometimes I've arrived at a time or on the return trip where I'm starting my daylight all over again and your body just keeps going. And there's something about light that it keeps you awake. And so at some point you need to have some dark for rest. So my point is, is even in the physical realm, uh, there's reasons for darkness. But the other way the light darkness metaphor is used in Scripture very often is in terms of what God has revealed and what he hasn't revealed. So he talks about people who are in the dark. Uh, that is to say they, um, they don't understand what God has revealed. And so God is creating light. He's creating darkness. Uh, again, it's a beautiful expression of who God is. It's day one, and he's stepping through the days of creation because he is entering now into a physical universe that he is going to create for us to enjoy and for us to have a relationship with God. Good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Artem from Sacramento, California writes, Hello, Dr. Brogy. We had received from you, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend gospel tracks about five years ago at the Third Slavic Baptist Church. Is there any way for me to purchase more of these gospel tracts from you? There's nothing available on this website, and hoping you still have them. Thank you. That's a good question. I I suppose we need to uh, put that up on the website, Rick, where people can actually purchase them. Um, yeah, I remember, I think it was maybe 10 years ago, I did a... Um, uh, I spoke uh, at the Third Sla- uh, Slavic Baptist Church in, uh, I think that was in Sacramento. If it's Yeah, yeah, there it is, Sacramento. It's right there. Uh, but it was, I, I remember there were Slavic people from uh, 12 different former Soviet satellites who attended there. And I did um, take my booklet at that time, and I put it in Russian, 
and it was also later then put in Ukrainian. So I'm not sure which edition. If I remember in that particular church that I preached in, uh, they did the services in Russian because that was kind of the common language amongst all the Slavic people under communism. If you're Ukrainian or Romanian or Moldavian or Georgian or whatever country you were from, you had to learn Russian. Uh, After communism fell, um, most people still learned that language, but more and more they went to their native uh, national language as much as anything as an expression of we're not under uh, the Soviet control anymore. Uh, but I do have that booklet in, in fact, let's see, it's in, it's in Russian, it's in Ukrainian, it's in English, it's in Italian, it's in Japanese, it's in Tagalog, it's in Hindi, it's in, um, let's see. Chinese? Uh, no, no, it's in Kosi. Um, it's in nine languages. I know that I'm missing one. Uh, in either case, did I say Italian? I think I you did. did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in English, yeah. So there, <laughs> there it is, English. <laughs> yeah. So it's available in a number of languages, and it's really a helpful track to a lot of people because it it gives definition contextually in meaning to the verses that I cover, and it's what I would call an Acts 17 presentation of the gospel. When I was a brand new Christian in January of 1975, um, we had an assignment in this class I was attending to take a little booklet at the time called The Four Spiritual Laws and to go out and share it. And it's what I would call an Acts 2 presentation of the gospel and that it uh, assumes that you have a certain biblical knowledge. So it started with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, John three sixteen, John 10, 10, and so on. Uh, that knowledge is now gone. But in Acts 2, when Peter stands up on Pentecost, he's interfacing with uh, the Tanakh, or what we call the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh. And Jews today call it the Tanakh. Uh, it's uh, basically um, taking three words, Torah, the law, uh, the um, Ketuvim, which is the um, uh, the wisdom writings, and the Nephilim, the prophets. And so you get Tanakh from those three words put together. And it's what they call the Old Testament. So he stands up and he assumes that people have a basic knowledge. Hey, you know, David said this. He assumes they know something about King David and you can't assume that anymore. So in Acts 17, when Paul does a presentation of the gospel, it's very, very different. It's to raw pagans where they have no biblical understanding of anything. And that's where he starts. And that's more and more where we need to start today. I mean, I am meeting people who come to our meet the pastor and I'll say, well, you know, God warned Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit. Did they eat it? And I'll have people in there who will say, I don't know. And they honestly do not know. I had a man not long ago who came to our Wednesday night service uh, when I was doing the financial course uh, four or five months back, Rick. And um, he came just because he saw that. And he said to me after the service that this was the first time ever he had been in a church. I said, oh, come on, you sh- certainly you've been to a funeral or a wedding. He said, as far as I know, he said, I've been to some funerals in a funeral home and a graveyard, I'd been to a few weddings out on the beach, but I, he was about 22, 23 years old. This is the first time I've ever been in a church building. And so we're beginning to see the fruit now of a new generation. 
And remember, 80% of the children on any given Sunday, 12 and under, no longer attend church. So we're seeing this whole new generation that is literally bankrupt and totally biblically ignorant. And so you need a broader presentation of the gospel. And it's kind of like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, even for someone who's had some exposure, because obviously he had had exposure. That's why he bought the book of Isaiah. Why would he want Isaiah as a eunuch? Because Isaiah is the one book that says some really good things about eunuchs and about God's uh, uh, love for the eunuch. So that would be like a great book for him to buy. And of course, he's in a portion of scripture that contains the plan of salvation written 700 years before Jesus shows up in Bethlehem. He's in Isaiah 53 and, and the providence and timing of God. I mean, Philip literally has to jog to catch the uh, chariot. One's coming south, the other is going west. And in God's providence, their paths cross at just the right time. And Philip says, say, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, well, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So typically, someone does not pick up a Gideon's Bible in a hotel and is converted. Uh, There has to be some backdrop. Now, sometimes someone does because someone has been sharing with them for years and years, and they have some backdrop. But most of the time, someone has to sit down and explain it to them. So that's what I've done with the booklet would you like to know God as your friend? And so they're just simple, defined verses so that people can understand what the verse is saying in its context. So I might have, say, Second Corinthians five twenty one. he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then there's some commentary on that verse that will follow, giving some definition as to what that verse means, how Christ who was sinless on the cross took the sin of all time upon himself, and that when we receive Jesus as our personal Savior, God credits the righteousness, the perfection that Christ has to our account. And so um, the booklet can be really, really helpful. And I often tell people, if you haven't led anyone to Christ in the last two or three years, you're either A, not sharing, or B, you're not sharing in a way that is clear. Because God wishes that none should perish, but for all to come to repentance. God's heart is for people to hear the plan of salvation. Now, I'll make some exceptions to that general principle, like when Adoniram Judson went overseas to Burma. Uh, He went to a country where he didn't know a word of Burmese. And so before he could share the gospel, he had to learn Burmese, and then he had to take the New Testament and translate it into that language before he could share it. So it was almost 20 years before he saw his first convert, and he was persecuted greatly in the process. But as a general principle, assuming there's no language barriers— Uh, The Bible is clear. Jesus said, don't say there are four months and then comes the harvest. Look, the fields are white on the harvest. Now, I know the NIV says ripe, but it's not really, that's that's interpretive. It's white. It's white on the harvest. That's the only translation that does that. Uh, And Jesus is using the picture, you know, like wheat in uh, Jerusalem, much like in America, takes on a white tone right at the end, just when it's ripe, R-I-P-E, for harvest. It's white on the harvest. It, it takes on a white U. 
And, of course, these people are coming in their traditional white garb, and they are headed towards Jesus per the invitation of the Samaritan woman. And these are people that Jesus um, is reminding the disciples they might have reached out to. They were just in that town buying food. Did they invite any of those folks to come back and talk to Jesus? On one occasion, they say, hey, Lord, we're not too well received by these Samaritans. Should we call fire down from heaven and, you know, burn these people? Uh, Their compassion wasn't there where it needed to be. Of course, it's pre-Pentecost, and they're not regenerated yet by the Spirit of God. But Jesus said, don't say there are four months and then comes the harvest. That's almost a proverbial statement because there's two principal growing seasons in Israel where you, you, you plant and then, yeah, four months, you know, we can... We've got four months before the harvest comes. No, Jesus is saying in the spiritual realm, while it is true there is a coming huge future harvest where the lost are saved, and I mean the lost are separated from the saved, but there's a daily harvest where there are people every day who are potentially prepared and ready for harvest. And you might um, just plant a seed, but you can at least plant the seed. And of course, Jesus reminded them that there are some people who went before them that planted a seed. Look, if a seed's never planted, then there's never going to be a harvest. There's never going to be a plant. And so Jesus said, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and other reaps. I sent you to reap for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So the Lord is reminding them that there had been some pre-work, some pre-evangelistic work, pre-harvest work would be maybe a better way to say it, before they arrived. And, of course, we know from the accounts of John the Baptist that he was actually in this area preaching a a message of repentance. And so he had been preparing them for the Messiah. And so they're entering into the evangelistic work of John the Baptist, and now the crop's ready to be harvested. But without seed, there's no crop. So some of us never see anyone to come to Christ because we don't sow any seed. And then sometimes we never even harvest seed that's already been sown because our presentation of the gospel is so sloppy. And so, again, this might be something that would be useful to you. Would you like to have God as your friend? You can go to, um, or you can call Search the Scriptures, but we'll put it on the website and all the languages that are available so that people can uh, get those booklets there. And if you, uh, Rick, I'm sure you're still running this at the end of the closes about how people can get them for free. Is that right? At the end of the search the scriptures search broadcast. The scripture, sure. Uh huh. So a couple of times a week, Rick puts on there where we will actually give those booklets to you for free, only 50 at a time, if you will use them. So I don't want to pay for the booklet and pay for the shipping. We ask you to just pay for the shipping. But the booklets, you know, cost about 30 cents each to print, but I don't want them to be wasted. But if you will use them, we'll provide the booklet for free. All you do is pay for the shipping. And so that's something that um, this 
brother from Sacramento, California, might consider. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, we just received a call from a listener who says that in today's political climate, with many of our elected officials appearing to be anti-Semitic, will those who are not standing up for the Jews be judged by God? You know, I am actually coming to this very issue this Sunday in our study of the Revelation. So you might want to definitely tune in this Sunday. Uh, we live stream both services at 9.15 or 11. Uh, a lady came to me recently on the Bluffton campus when I was over there last month, and she said, Pastor Carl, she said, I, I drive all the way from Georgia to come and listen to you, but she said the church is in our town. There's just nothing. Nobody even opens the Bible, and some don't even believe it. But I said, well, is there any... Bible-believing churches, yeah, they are, but they don't teach. I said, well, you need to be there on a Sunday morning. Now, I said, if you want to live stream the 915 service, great, but you can't say, well, I'm just, because her question to me was, can I just live stream and not go to church at all? And I said, no, that's forsaking the assembling together of the brethren. You need to be with some people physically on a Sunday morning because iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens another. And we we need that we need that help we need that encouragement, um, and you can, you know, be a huge part. But with that said, this coming Sunday I will, and it's posted after the service is done a few hours later. But I will deal with this subject of uh, the growing anti-Semitic movement in this country. I mean, it's kind of like what happened in Germany. What happened in Germany was very slow and subtle to start. And most of the evangelicals were totally oblivious to what Hitler was actually doing. And the pre-anti-Semite strategies that he had, that turned into a full-blown anti-Semitism. And of course, through this BDS movement, boycott, divest, sanction, uh, it is an anti-Semitic movement that is happening across the country. And the target is largely college campuses. So if you have uh, young people who are attending even a university in a more conservative Bible Belt state like South Carolina, and you ask them about the BDS movement, they'll probably be able to tell you, yeah, I hear about that on our campus and how you know cruel the Israelis are and how we should be boycotting their products and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It, it, it's, it's creating an anti-Semitic spirit. Now, we know there is coming a time when the whole world is going to go against Israel, even the United States of America. That's going to happen after the rapture of the church. But right now, uh, there is a growing movement, and God is using what man means for evil, for good, and that he is using the anti-Semitic movement of our day in many countries of the world to get the Jews to leave. And so where are they going? To the one place they're welcomed, and they're going to be protected, and that is now Israel. I I think when I started the revelation, I said there were 6.2 million Jews in Israel. That is now an outdated number. It is now 6. almost 9. It's just shy of 6.9 million Jews. They keep coming. They keep coming. Now, do all 100% need to migrate to Israel? For God to pull it off? Obviously not, because God is also clear that 
at the end of the seven-year period, he will gather the Jewish people from different places of the world. But the Bible does say that he is going to, prior to that, gather the Jewish people from the nations of the world. And so today, if you go to Israel, there's over 100 nations that are represented of Jewish people from 100 different countries of the world. And it's phenomenal what God is doing because God said this is what would happen at the end of time. And so with that said, getting a little more pointed to your question, God does give a promise in Genesis 12 when he establishes the Abrahamic covenant. And the first time he states it, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed because through Abraham's loins will come the Savior of the world. And so there is a principle here, and I think it's one of the maybe only reasons why God hasn't really allowed our country to suffer a lot more greatly and that we are standing with Israel. I don't care what you think about Trump. You may hate Trump, but number one, if you're a born-again Christian, you should pray for him. Number two, you should certainly stand behind politicians that protect life. And we got a lot of Democrats and now some Republicans who are in favor of murdering little babies. And that's an evil beyond evil. But the official platform of the Democratic Party is let's kill little babies. In fact, every single person that is still running for president on that platform is in favor of killing babies on their birthday if that's the decision that the doctor and the mother wants to make. I mean, this is just beyond imagination what is happening. And everyone on that platform is also in favor of perversion. The LGBTQ movement is being sanctioned as normal and that those who oppose it, they should be opposed. And so one of the men who was running who just dropped out in that race, his suggestion was that those who oppose the LGBTQ lifestyle, i.e. evangelical Christians, that their tax-exempt status should be removed. I said that well over a decade ago, and some people laughed at me. They said, that's kind of extreme, isn't it, Pastor? Well, we're seeing this kind of extreme thinking enter into the political realm. And again, are they in favor of blessing Israel? And they're not. And so, you know, I want a politician. And look, Trump's got a lot of issues. I get that. He's got a lot of moral issues in his past. And I'm not saying whether he's crossed the line. He doesn't appear to me like he's met Christ's personal savior, but I'm not his judge. But I do know that he is affirming some policies that are more reflective of biblical truth. And I do know that when this nation of ours, if we reach the point where we come against Israel, Uh, I'm telling you, America will not be a great place to live anymore. Everything will change more dramatically than you can ever imagine. And so you don't want to be an anti-Semite, and you don't want to be in a nation as a whole that goes against Israel, or God is going to judge that nation in ways that— and again, he should have done it by now. You know, Billy Graham used to say 25 years ago that if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, you know, my, think about what's happened since Dr. Graham made that statement. We've only declined further and further and deeper and deeper into sin. And I really think the only reason God hasn't let his wrath 
go because there's different kinds of wrath, and he is already judging us. He is judging us. Uh, the wrath of God is being revealed against heaven, but it's going to get a lot worse if we go against Israel. Okay, we've got about three minutes. Hopefully, we can cover this. Uh, Richard from Wittensville, Massachusetts, would like you to speak a little about textual variants in manuscripts from which we get our Bible. As a believer who doesn't know Greek or Hebrew and cannot study the manuscripts, what should this person know about it? What can I say to someone, he says, who might bring up textual variants as a, quote, evidence of the Bible's unreliability? Well, I would uh, direct Richard to my series on bibliology, where I deal with this subject in great depth. Uh, If you were to take all of the uh, textual variants that are, you know, points of debate amongst the secular uh, agnostic and the atheists and just the skeptic of Christianity, they'd all fit on one page. And there's not a single textual variant that comes into play that has any effect on anything that the Bible says, states, or anything that Christians believe. So textual variants come about through copies of Scripture where people put their own notes into the manuscript that they're copying, and then when their copy gets copied by someone else, then you have a whole new family of manuscripts where someone's personal notes are intertwined within the text. And so then the question becomes, is that note something that God wrote, or is that note just something a person copied, just like if I opened your Bible, you might have notes out in the margin uh, that are clearly notes, um, but they didn't write notes that way in the day when the Bible was being copied because uh, letters were written from end to end. They didn't even put spaces between words, no punctuation, uh, all to save space. And so the reader would have to supply where one word stopped and the new word began in their mind. And in addition, uh, sometimes, again, a scribal note would be put there. Like it might say, Lord Jesus, and someone just out of habit says, Lord Jesus, Messiah. And they write, Christ. And so, well, maybe the original was Lord Jesus. So how do you know what's the original? You go back to the older manuscripts and you compare and you compare and oh yeah, that's clearly a scribal note. And that was done with the King James and really every translation that you're dealing with. But it affects nothing in terms of doctrine or what we believe. So it's a silly argument. And uh, But I really cover this in depth in my course on bibliology. And so I would direct Richard to that. Well, we're out of time, but thanks for being with us today for the Bible Line. I hope this has been helpful to you. And It will be posted here in the next hour or so for you to send to your friends. And if you don't have the Search the Scriptures app, I encourage you to download it online at the App Store, Search the Scriptures. Thanks so much. God bless you. 